You're listening to the Man Overseas Podcast, a show that explores methods and ideas to help you live a bigger life. You will hear interesting stories of how people live, how they save and invest their money, and why having time wealth is better than being a billionaire. If you are entertained, educated, or elevated, be sure to hit the subscribe button. We're just getting started. Now here is your host, Brad D'Antonio. Hello, you beautiful listeners around the world. I come to you from New Orleans, Louisiana. I'm glad you're here. After five weeks in Playa del Carmen, Mexico, we decided to put our luggage down here in the Crescent City. We did make a quick stop in Houston, but we were only supposed to be here in New Orleans for a few weeks. Our July 15th flight to Europe was canceled yet again, and so we are still here. Having a U.S. passport right now is not ideal. The only countries near to America that have no air travel restrictions are Mexico, Ecuador, and Haiti. There are a few places you can travel to in Europe that have no air travel restrictions. There are so few I can name them. It's UK, Slovenia, Ireland, Belarus, Ukraine, and then Finland and Moldova are supposed to be opening soon. That is per a kayak article that I read on July 16th. Today, my guest is Keegan Stokoe. He is a writer and technologist from Johannesburg, South Africa. I was fortunate to visit South Africa in 2015. In fact, when I'm asked which are the favorite or most beautiful countries that I've ever been to, South Africa is always in my top two or three. One of the things I appreciate about today's guest, he's not only a sharp young man from South Africa, but what he's come to realize and appreciate are the powers of the internet. It's a rare quality for someone who doesn't know what life was like prior to the internet to fully appreciate the wonders of the World Wide Web, especially being from South Africa and how it connects all of us. If you're a regular listener of this program, you know that I'm a big proponent of having friends of all ages. Well, I've been following Keegan, who's considerably younger than me. I've been following him on Twitter for a while. He spends his time exploring the intersection of ideas, specifically as it pertains to technology and philosophy and education. So his tweets I've always found to be insightful, and I knew he'd be an excellent guest. You can tell from his writing, both on Twitter and on KeeganStoko.com, that he's a very clear thinker. And no surprise, about halfway into the episode, without being prompted, he shared that he had a favorite thinker. And I thought, of course, he's got a favorite thinker. (laughs) Shouldn't we all be so curious and self-directed in our learning as to have a favorite thinker? I love that. So we discuss ways to use technology to create better thinkers and become better problem solvers in the future. We talk about the bus ticket theory of genius, which is an essay written by Y Combinator co-founder Paul Graham. We discuss the power of compound interest and how it should be taught in schools. Also, I quote the former Yankee great Joe DiMaggio. And Keegan asks me whether taking a year off to travel the world is a good idea. Some people do it to find themselves. I, of course, think that's baloney. You create yourself. You don't find yourself. But I share something very personal about my family's views of my travels, especially early on. 
I also tell another story for the first time about when I fell out of a boat and was trapped in crocodile-infested waters on the border of Zambia and Zimbabwe. And I remember thinking to myself, this is it. This is how it all ends. Also, during fun questions at the end, we discuss quite a few books you may be interested in reading. I count nine in total, three of which I hadn't heard of before Keegan mentioned them. So whether you're at the gym or you're riding in your car or SUV, or you're just strolling around the neighborhood on an afternoon walk, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Keegan Stokoe. Keegan, welcome to the podcast, man. I'm glad to have you here. Thanks, Brad. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. Looking forward to the chat. Your latest piece is called The Modern Day Mind Killer. And I love reading about the stuff that is killing our mind. I I said yesterday in an Instagram story that after playing RBI baseball with my brother, one of the things that I found myself doing was practicing mindfulness so that I could maintain focus. We used to play this game in 1987. I don't recall needing a mindfulness technique, but since technologies have gotten a thousand times better than they were in 1987, I think they've scattered our brains a bit, requiring more focus. So I I was curious, what prompted you to write that article? It's funny that you mentioned that, actually. Um, I was listening to a podcast the other day with uh, Toby Lutke, the CEO of Shopify. Um, and he was on, he was on with, uh, Patrick or Sean is on invest at the best. And, you know, obviously, uh, Toby Lutke is a card carrying member of the video games are good. Um, and that's exactly what he was saying. You know, he's saying you, you learn so much from, uh, from video games. Obviously it depends what games they are and what you're doing, but there's tons to be learned. So I was just laughing when you said that there, that's playing RBI baseball is certainly helping you with, uh, with mindfulness and focus. But yeah, in in terms of the Monday Mind Killer, it was um, something that I've been thinking about a lot. And uh, obviously, you know, as a, a writer, I'm exposed to a lot of content and a lot of different things on the internet. Just the internet in general absolutely fascinates me. And I'm um, astounded by the fact that, you know, in a few seconds at the click of a button, you can have access to any information you could possibly want. Um, and, you know, Technology is incredible because it can do that. But I think that the problem with technology is sometimes it's too good at what it does. So if you look at uh, the evolution of internet-based writing, for example, back in the early days of the internet, anybody could start a blog and anybody could write online, but it was pretty difficult. There was a a high barrier to entry. So at that stage, and this was a little bit before my time, but Evan Williams later to be the founder of Twitter, he, he founded Blogger at the time. So he didn't really do anything new, but what he did is that he enabled people to to do whatever they wanted to do and write online um, in a, a much more convenient way. And then fast forward a few years and Twitter came along and kind of obliterated a whole lot of blogging because it fulfilled the same desire and the same needs, but it did it more conveniently. And the reason that was more convenient is that uh, it, it reduced the cognitive strain um, of going and searching and finding good content because it eliminated a whole lot of choices. If I wanted to look for something to read or something to consume, I can jump onto Twitter and within a few seconds, you know, there's something there. And I think that that's dangerous. You know, you, you have a look at how easy it is to create content and share content. Um, and then how easy it is to access content on the internet. 
and all of a sudden it becomes very clear that not everything out there is going to be going to be good a lot of the stuff we we see and we read and we hear you know it's filled with biases and misleading information and and that can be dangerous because it impairs our ability to think properly and to think for ourselves uh if we we consuming the same information as everybody out there you know we're going to think the same thoughts and that's not good for us as individuals but it's not good for us as a society you know when we're doing that then progress and kind of innovation is it's bound to become stagnant so the article was was touching on that and it's not to say that you know we shouldn't use things like social media and sites like medium and like you said we met over twitter and i think that they're incredibly powerful tools for finding people who share similar ideas to you and people who you can learn from and kind of people that you can interact with um but i think that we need to be very deliberate about how we use them and we need to make sure that we aren't just using it and regurgitating content on demand you know because somebody that we like said it or because we think that it sounds good or it makes us sound intelligent um i think it's important that we learn to identify good content and then actually dig deeper into it don't take it at surface level but dig deeper look at you know the sources where that is coming from and the books that the the author is reading and really figure out an opinion for yourself don't just accept it but think about it and internalize it and you know as information becomes more and more accessible this information literacy is going to be an important skill to develop that's such a great point i find myself reading books a lot less because of twitter one of the things that i do i will bookmark something that i like like if it's a long essay from paul graham for example i will bookmark it to come back to it later and then i will set aside time like for the next 60 minutes i am going to read the twitter articles that i need to catch up on but scrolling through twitter sometimes keeps me from reading books that i want to read i see twitter as this amazing tool that will help differentiate between high achievers and low achievers that it's only going to exacerbate inequality down the road i i think the internet as a tool is going to make smart people smarter and dumb people dumber it's all in how you use it and and twitter is is sort of the mecca for this sort of thinking because you can absolutely curate your twitter feed to be fed with the best minds around the world. So I might not only follow the top performing Wall Street banker last year and get all of his thoughts on trends and his predictions for the future, but I can follow a sharp young thinker in Johannesburg who is just sharing thoughts that come to him. And so all those thoughts I get to pause and consider and maybe I take a note or I save it to my bookmark so that I can go back to it it's sort of like keeping a journal in a lot of ways a journal of of other people's thoughts so yeah twitter is a powerful learning tool and as we've established you and I met on twitter which is pretty cool right you like my thoughts i like your thoughts hey we'll follow each other and we'll learn from each other because one of the things that i i noticed in the corporate world that bothered me was people thinking that they had nothing to learn from somebody who was 10, 15, even 20 years younger than them. That's bullshit. You can learn. I I I strongly I'm a huge proponent of people having friends of all ages because you can learn just as much from somebody who's 75 years old as you can from somebody who's 25 years old. 
And that's never been more important to do than now, right? Because technology is accelerating the pace of change so quickly that you'd be wise to have some friends who are hip to the newest trends because the newest trends are generally set by younger people. So while there, there's a lot of wisdom to be gained from older friends, there's a lot of knowledge, new knowledge that can be gained from having friends who are 25. How old are you, Keegan? I'm 24. Perfect. <laughs> That's exactly what I'm talking about. So I follow a 24-year-old on Twitter and have gotten huge benefit, and I'm probably going to have a lifelong friend. So take it from me. It's worthwhile to start curating your Twitter feed and learning from the best minds around the world. If, if you're into that sort of thing, if, if you have an insatiable curiosity to learn and develop, Twitter is a fine way to do that. Yeah, I think you, you hit the nail on the head there. And that's the, the power of the internet really comes down to how you use it. I think, you know, it's one thing to be able to connect with people on the other side of the world, but the real beauty of it is that you can connect with the ideas you, know, you aren't just having a conversation or whatever it is. You are connecting with how they think and how they see the world. And I'm sitting in South Africa, you're sitting in the United States. We live two completely different lives. And the internet and something like Twitter is the intersection of that. It's a point where you know, I, I come with a certain perspective and you come with a completely different perspective. And I think that's important because it's very easy to get wrapped up in thinking that the way that you see the world is the only way that the world is. I think that's a very naive approach to take. And that is one thing that, that the internet and something like Twitter helps you to avoid. In terms of what you're saying about age, you know, I completely agree with you. It's something that uh, I think about it often because you know, I encounter it fairly often. And I found that people on the internet are far more tolerant towards age. And like you said, wanting to, learn or interact or communicate with people of various ages than people in um, everyday real life scenarios. So uh, I definitely agree with you on that. And um, I think that it works both ways. I'm excited to learn from people who have been in similar positions to the one that I'm in now and people who have figured out what works and what doesn't. And, you know, I can learn from them and make sure that I don't make the same mistakes. Jordan Peterson talks about the lobsters and how hierarchically structured their situations are going back hundreds of thousands, millions of years, and we're still hierarchically driven. And so there's a lot of ego and pride and arrogance involved in a lot of corporate, the corporate world, I was going to say corporate America, but in the corporate world to where you start to close your mind as you age. I remember negotiating a salary one time with a a guy who was pretty much a friend of mine. I had known him for a while and he wanted me to come work for him. And then when we got into the heat of the negotiations, he said, well, you, you only have nine years experience and, and this guy on my team has 12. And so and I'm like, well, how does that matter at all? You know, uh, Experience shouldn't be measured in time. I got a brand new MacBook Pro and it keeps closing on me. Give me just a second. No problem. It's exciting to have a new MacBook. I know. You're right. Apple is far more popular there than it is here. I mean, it's, uh -huh. it's fairly popular here, but um, quite expensive uh, and not too many people have it. But I bought a 
mean, I'm a massive fan. I finally bought a MacBook about a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago. And it's the best purchase I've made in my entire life. Wow, that's yeah, saying absolutely. a lot. Do you also yeah, use I AirPods? Love it. Yeah, I do. And I've an got iPhone? Them. Yeah. So, all works nicely together. I think that's, yeah, you you got to invest everything in it. If you're going to go for one, then, then go for it all. It all syncs so nicely and just works in harmony. Well, I also believe that you should invest in Apple. <laughs> I'm always <laughs> preaching that you should invest in technologies that you use and love. When my wife and I got married in May 2018, we were using AirPods. I got my groomsman AirPods. We were using MacBooks. We were using iPhones. Warren Buffett had just bought 75 million shares of Apple. So I said, we're going to start dollar cost averaging buying Apple stock. And at that time, it was at about 180 a share. Well, it dropped to 144 a share. And I don't know if you've looked lately, but it just about touched $400 a share this morning. If people just invested a little bit of that money that they're spending instead on Apple products, they probably get their Apple products paid for. Now, I'm not recommending a stock. Don't take investment advice from a, a podcast host, but just sharing what I have done and had success with. And we all know that the price of a stock can drop 50% tomorrow. So be careful. Investing in individual stocks is risky. I, I'm curious about your writing process. What, what does that look like? So I'm a, a big believer in that you have to be very consistent. Um, it's, you know, obviously there's there's a lot of value in striking while the iron is hot. And if you, you know, if you have a, a flash of inspiration, then you run to your laptop and start writing. You know, that's where the really, really good stuff comes from. But that's rare. And if you're going to rely on those moments, then I don't think that you're going you're gonna to make it very far. So I write every day obviously because I want to write consistently and publish consistently, but it's also because since I started doing that, you know, it's amongst the best habits that, um, that I've cultivated. And I think that more people need to write every day. Uh, I know that sounds a little bit preachy, but you know, I'll, I'll explain why I say it. First things first, I don't mean to write and publish your work. You don't have to write essays and edit them for days on end and then share it with the world. You know, do that if you want to. Um, there is a lot of value in doing that, but that's not what I'm talking about when I say write uh, on a daily basis. When I say that, I'm talking about sitting at your computer and writing about yourself and the things that you care about. Um, and that you should write because when you know that you're going to write, it, it changes the way that you live. So when you know that you're going to sit down and write every morning, you see the world through a different lens. I mean, you, you go around and you spend your days and you're more inquisitive and you seek a deeper understanding of how the things around you work. So even the mundane stuff, you really want to know how it works and exactly how this uh, all fits together. So when you have that inquisitive nature, um, you tend to generate questions and it's not something that you try to do. It happens automatically. And I think that's the beauty of it. I mean, if you're writing every day, you are more inquisitive and it certainly means that you're going to live more curiously. I think that more of the world and the things around you tend to pop out. Like I said, even the stuff that's boring, all of a sudden it becomes incredibly interesting. So it makes you more aware and it, it makes sure that you engage with the world around you instead of just watching it pass by on a day-by-day -day basis. That's a great point. I'm not even sure if the benefits of writing regularly are finite, if the list is finite. I think there may be infinite benefits to writing regularly. If you want life to pop, if you want it to come alive for you, 
as a function of writing consistently, you're going to start paying attention and seeing things that you didn't before. The fact that you figured that out at an early age is astounding to me. Did, are, have you been exposed to Stephen Pressfield's work, like The War of Art or Do the Work? I know of him, but I haven't read a lot of his work. But I came across him a few weeks ago. He did a, an episode on the AI podcast with Lex Friedman. So I was listening to him there and found him to be very, very interesting. The interest there, and I've started reading a little bit more, but I haven't um, read any of his, his major work, but I'm planning on getting to it. It seems like it's some great writing. It's such a good writer, such a good author. My favorite audiobook of all time, and I've probably heard less than 100 audiobooks, but I mean, if I had to guess, I've, I've listened to maybe 80 audiobooks. My favorite by far is Stephen Pressfield's The War of Art. I've listened to it probably eight times. I love it. It's so good. And I usually don't like books that are not read by the author, but whoever the guy is that reads it is fantastic. I've researched him. He's won all sorts of awards. Another favorite audiobook of mine is called The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. And that's more of a spiritual guide, but a very practical guide also. I imagine the internet has changed life for South Africans as much as anyone in the world because it's so remote, right? I mean, it's considered sub-Saharan Africa, although there's always been a tie with, with the British you know, for a long time, which probably connects you a little more to the world than, say, the Congo. But do you think that the advent of the internet has changed the lives of many Africans, South Africans? For me personally, it has completely i'm very fortunate to have been born when i was in that you know the internet now is you're really connected south africa to the rest of the world and that that's something that i've always known obviously that connection has increased in recent years and that's all that i know so you know it's, it's difficult for me to say how it's changed the lives of um, other south africans and and older generations but for me, you know, I'm constantly astounded by the power of it. You know, I connect and work with people from around the world on a daily basis. And I find that absolutely incredible. Um, like I said, I was, I was fortunate to have been born when I was. Um, you know, if I was born a, a few years or a couple of generations earlier, that certainly wouldn't be the case. Now, with the, with the connection that we have, you know, I think the internet's possibly the greatest invention of all time. You know, you've got to give uh, a whole lot of credit to the wheel and to electricity and whatnot, but you know the internet is right up there and it's, it's incredible. And I think the magic of it is that it it fits into our everyday lives and it makes our everyday lives better. You know, um, and the part that really excites me the most is that as much as we look at it and we think, oh wow, we've come a long way, I think that we were right at the start. You know, we we're going to see some incredible things coming out of the internet and and the information age. Um, I think the biggest part of that is that it allows people to collaborate. It allows the greatest minds on the planet, regardless of where they are, to connect and collaborate at the drop of a hat. And that's never, ever been possible before. So I think it's it's very exciting to see what that's going to lead to. That's a good point, too. Historically, cities have been the place where people will converge and grow personally and get smarter. I mean, typically, the, the more educated are in bigger cities, and I imagine that's because they're exposed to different cultures. 
Uh, you get more uh, disparate ideas in big cities. So just as an example, Vienna was a mecca for geniuses in late 19th century, early 20th century. And it was primarily musical, but it was also literary and psychologist. Sigmund Freud was from there. Politicians, Trotsky, Hitler, all them were they were they spent a lot of time in Vienna and it attracted people because the expectations were high. They demanded good music, for example. They demanded good literature. And so people flocked there. Well, nowadays, you don't have to move to a big city. You could be from four hours outside of a big city and connect with people just as easily. So that's one of the ways that the internet has changed the world. You can be exposed to ideas in London and Paris and Tokyo, and, and you don't need to travel there. I always list South Africa in my top five most beautiful countries I've ever visited. Where do you live about in South Africa? I'm in Johannesburg. Okay. So it's inland. Yeah. Not a, not a coastal province. How far does your ancestry go back in that area? So on my mom's side, she's actually from Zimbabwe. So she moved, she was born in Zimbabwe and moved to South Africa when she was um, still a child. So she was, yeah. And then I was born in South Africa and lived in South Africa my whole life. Um, before that, my grandparents were also born in Zimbabwe, but the generation before that, uh, I've got German and Dutch ancestry. So when I visited Lusaka, I can't remember if it was Lusaka, the capital or the entire country of Zambia, but it was something like 99.9% African black. Is Zimbabwe similar? And, and then how does Johannesburg, South Africa compare in terms of ethnicity? In Zimbabwe, there used to be a bigger white population, but there was a lot of immigration um, after the fall of Rhodesia and the Rhodesian Bush War. So that was the, the 80s and the 90s. Um, and that's, that's, in fact, when my mom moved to South Africa. South Africa has, I believe it's 8 or 9% of the population is uh, of white ethnicity. But then there's uh, the, the largest proportion is black African, and then there's also Indian and colored. So it is quite diverse, but um, yeah, the biggest percentage of the population is black. Okay, you said eight or nine percent of South Africans are white. Yeah. Okay, and when you say colored, what does that mean? Colored is um, so it's a mix. So at at some points, you know, in the the family lineage, there's yeah a mix of two different races. Are you aware of the racial hysteria that's going on in America right now? I am. I've seen quite a lot about it uh, on the internet. Are you guys going through something similar there? After the George Floyd incident, there was a tension um, in South Africa, but race is always a, a subject that is being discussed and you know it's always topical in South Africa. Because of our history, it's, it is something that needs to be like that. You know, it's important to be aware of what happened in the past so that we can continue to, to rectify those mistakes that, that were made um, by the apartheid government and so that we can move towards a South Africa where you know, equality and justice is a real thing. It's not just something that's mentioned and 
something that people like to say, you know, there's, there's still a lot of tension and directly so South Africa still has, you know, its fair share of racism and there is a lot of people who are still suffering from from what happened here, you know, in the under the apartheid regime. So it's important that it does get the attention that it does because, you know, that's the only way that we move forward and how us as the younger generation make sure that it doesn't happen again. Are there many townships where you live? There are a lot, uh, not, you know, not too close, but within 10, 20, 30 kilometers they are. When I visited South Africa in 2015, we visited a township and we learned about how and why the townships were set up and how they live and earn a living. And the average rent that they paid for these tiny metal shacks was 300 rand at the time, which is about 25 US dollars per month. And walking around the township, I remember wanting to help, like giving a smiling kid a few rand out of my pocket. But our tour guide gave us specific instructions not to give money to anyone, saying he said that they don't want to foster a culture of dependence or create a beggar mentality. And I was taken aback by that. I wasn't expecting to hear it at all. I, I couldn't believe it, actually. He said that they viewed those living at the front of the township, which were basically nicer versions of these metal shacks. He said that they were economically successful quote unquote, economically successful because they had worked hard for the privilege of no longer living in one of the tiny shacks. He said that they had earned their money and made good decisions on how to save and spend it, thereby improving their lot in life. You'll never hear that kind of talk in America. There's just nothing to be gained politically from that sort of mentality. So it's not prevalent here, but I'll never forget what he told me. He said, the people believe that their hope and future lies within themselves and the people at the front of the township are examples for them to emulate. And when he said that, I, I took to, pay, to Facebook and wrote about the experience because I wanted to share it with my American friends. And so what I did was I wrote the, the three main differences between South Africa and America as I could see it in, my, in the short time that I spent in South Africa. And those three differences were, one, poverty in America does not compare to that of Africa or South Africa. Well, both. People in the poorest communities were just as happy as those in the wealthy areas of Cape Town, which I think speaks to the importance of relationships and social connectedness. And then three, without television, they, they can't afford televisions. Well, without TV... People don't have access to the talking heads that might incite jealousy and resentment for those who've done well. So with leaders like this guy in the community, I thought South Africa is the country to watch in the future. I, I just think there's going to be extraordinary growth and increase in standard of living based on my experience that I had in South Africa and being told I mean, I can tell you one of the, the most profound things I've ever heard in my life. I asked him to repeat. He said, we might live in conditions that, are, that aren't so great, but over the past 21 years, so I, I assume apartheid ended in 94, right? 21 years afterward would be 2015. He said, 
Over the past 21 years, we built a community and societies that are built on democratic values. He said, we are not demoralized. We have hope and we are optimistic about the future of our country. We were taught 21 years ago to forget about the past and move on and to focus on the future. And if you dwell too much on the past, the past will dwell on you. And some, they even miss opportunities at hand because of that. So he said, whatever is the good that has happened since the apartheid, we have learned to embrace it equally. And he said that wisdom he derived from Nelson Mandela. And I couldn't have been more impressed. Do you think that things have gotten better even since I was there 2015? Or are they trending in the other direction? Sounds like you had an incredible guide. I'm very privileged in the way I live and the life that I lead. You know, the, the people living in townships suffer from incredible hardship. I mean, that's, it's, it's not an easy way of life. And hearing that and hearing the outlook that your guide has on the situation and the past and the country and the optimism that he has for the future, you know, it's exactly like you said, those are the, the kind of leaders that a country like South Africa is searching for and the, the kind of leader that, you know, we're craving. So I don't think that I can answer your question about where it is now or if it's improved since 2015 or gotten worse because, you know, that's not the, the part of South Africa that I live in. And I think that it wouldn't be my position to say what it's like um, in those conditions. For anyone considering visiting South Africa, my buddy and I took a helicopter ride around the coast of Cape Town easily the top two or three most beautiful scenes I've ever witnessed in my life. And we also hiked around the top of Table Mountain. Incredible views. South Africa is so remote that it takes a long time to get there. But when you get there, it is so worth it. I remember walking down the street in Cape Town in the older part and looking at advertisements for real estate in the windows and seeing that a two-story house with a pool overlooking a cliff with the most amazing view was only like $800,000. And I thought, it's got to be because this is so remote and hard to get to. So I imagine maybe wealthy Western U Europeans own some of these houses as second homes, but it's very appealing. I, I love it down there. I'm very happy to hear you say that. I'm always a massive advocate for, for South Africa. I was overseas at the beginning of the year. I was in Southeast Asia and met quite a few Americans and quite a few Europeans. I was just telling them the entire time, you have to visit South Africa. I think as a, a foreigner from either the, either nor, anywhere in North America or Europe, it's an absolute dream. I mean, it's like you said, it's, it's an incredibly beautiful country. We spoiled with that and Cape Town in particular. You know, it's a, it's probably the most beautiful part of the country, although there are some hidden gems uh, in the other provinces. But also, you know, like I said, $800,000 is a lot of money for a South African. But when you look at it in the context of property around the world, you know, it really is a steal. But I always find it fascinating to hear what other people think about South Africa when they come. I mean, when you came, was it what you were expecting or was it completely different? I expected more of a European flair than it actually had. I was impressed by the mixing of races 
the the way that there weren't bars specific for whites or blacks that they all seem to to mix really well you don't see that as much in the states it's a little more self-segregated not that there's not intermingling but you don't see it as much as i did in cape town so that was nice to see i didn't get a chance to go to the wineries which i've heard are incredible we did go to a botanical garden that was awesome and we went to dive with sharks in cages and that was an awesome experience that was about two hours away from cape town and we also did some whale watching on the way back from from diving with the sharks probably the biggest adrenaline rush one of them that i've ever had was when the shark he swam at a high rate of speed and and bumped his nose into the cage it was scary i can imagine i haven't been shark cage diving but yeah i can imagine it's a exhilarating experience the sharks are big yes yes you and i are both fans of paul graham right the guy who founded or co-founded y combinator which is a tech startup accelerator and a seed capital firm here in the states in silicon valley to give listeners an idea of the sort of success that he has had y combinator has produced airbnb Dropbox, and many others. So even if Y Combinator maintained, let's say, a 2% stake in each of those upon liquidity, he's looking at a couple of hundred million dollars. So he's a quite successful guy, and he's also an author and an excellent writer of essays. And I, I try to read every one that he produces. He, he's, uh, he's active on Twitter a lot, too. And I like to see he, he posts interactions that he has with his kids. So he believes that formalized education just gives you a bunch of shallow knowledge and so he says since there are since my kids are already getting that shallow knowledge at school i'm going to go deeper with them at home and when they express an interest in some sort of topic he encourages them to go deep and i love that one of his most popular essays is called the bus ticket theory of genius have you read it keegan i have it's one of my favorites too his writing, you know, try to read everything, try to read it a few times. Even after reading everything um, a couple of times, that's one's definitely ranking up at the top. Yes. So anyone listening, if you haven't read The Bus Ticket Theory of Genius, I highly recommend it. It starts, everyone knows that to do great work, you need both natural ability and determination. Keegan, would you agree with him? I would. Do you remember... What he said is the third ingredient for doing great work? I believe it was an obsessive interest in a particular topic. Yes. Yes, I love that. Do, do you know who David Goggins is? I think I do. Is he, He's very um, into fitness. And he, yeah, and he's a vet, if yes. I'm not mistaken. Yes, that's okay. him. Yeah, he, he's quoted as saying, be more than motivated, be more than driven become literally obsessed to the point where people think you're fucking nuts. <laughs> and so when I was reading the bus ticket theory of genius, I was, I was thinking about that. It, it makes sense that an obsessive interest in a particular topic is what's needed for great work. And I can think of a few reasons. So one would be your reticular activator system. It stays on high alert when you're obsessed with something. So you'll pick up on things related to your topic of interest that you wouldn't have otherwise, right? If you weren't obsessed. And secondly, 
what you're doing won't feel like work. It may look like work to someone else, but just as an example, I was up late last night preparing for this podcast. So to my wife, if she were asked, what, would, what did I do last night? Well, I was working. Well, it didn't feel like work to me. I enjoy preparing for this podcast. Are you familiar with New York Yankee great Joe DiMaggio? So he was asked by a reporter one time, why do you play so hard? And he said, because there might be somebody in the stands today who's, who's never seen me play before. I love that. And I do have the first time listener on my mind when I sit to prepare for a show. And I love what Graham says about how obsession brings on good luck. He says, since chance favors the prepared mind, if there's one thing an obsessed mind is, it's prepared. And the reason I love that quote is because there are many variations of, of quotes having to do with luck. So, for example, my favorite quote from The Richest Man in Babylon is, opportunity is a haughty goddess who wastes no time with those who are unprepared. Another thing I like to say all the time is that uh, luck is where self-development and preparation meets opportunity, right? These are timeless wisdom little snippets that are passed on through generations in the form of quotes, but they become modernized with our current vernacular, how we speak today, right? He also talked about there needs to be a disinterested obsession. What did he mean by that? I think uh, when he says disinterested, um, you know, it's something where you don't stand to gain anything. It can be something as arbitrary as gaining, as collecting bus tickets. But if that's what your obsession is, then, you know, that's what you've got to pursue. It's actually funny that you mentioned that point. Um, I laughed at the, the end in all his essays. The Very often, my, my favorite part of it is the footnotes, just because he uses it to kind of explain his thinking and explain how he arrived at the point. Um, and in the, the the footnote for this essay, he says he was reluctant to use disinterested because, you know, so many people are going to assume it means not interested. But if you have any ambition of being a genius, then it's, you know, probably a word that you need to know. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I remember that. Yeah. So disinterest actually means not being influenced by personal advantage, right? There's nothing to personally be gained from collecting bus tickets. So he says the, the bus ticket collector's love is disinterested. He's not doing it to impress anyone. He's not doing it to make himself rich. He's just collecting bus tickets for its own sake. The consistent pattern that Graham recognized is that one's obsessive interest in something that usually seems pointless to most of the genius's contemporaries, it is pointless. I mean, I, like they don't know what they're doing. They're not laying the groundwork for some future uh, solution to the world's problems that's going to last for centuries. No, just like bus collectors, they're just doing it. And he used, you remember the geniuses, the examples he used in the essay? Um, I remember he mentioned Darwin and specifically uh, the voyage of the Beagle. This speaks about Newton and how, you know, Newton obviously pursued physics and he pursued alchemy and he pursued theology. But at the time, those were just things that he was interested in. It's easy for us to look back now and say, of course, the study of physics is important. Well, it's because of what we know now. But at the time, it wasn't. Nobody knew that it was going to be 
you know, as important and that it was going to shape the world like it has. Um, Newton was really doing it because it's, he was obsessed with it. And you know, that, that's where the genius comes from. Just an insatiable curiosity to learn and see where that path takes you. You think like, well, why hasn't somebody taken these pathways before? And I guess they, w- they would have assumed that they were dead ends. If something looks promising, then it's unlikely that it's not going to have been explored already. When something looks good, you're going to have a herd of people flocking there because it looks good. So, And that's where the importance of having an obsession that you know, really fascinates you. You're doing it for you. You're not doing it for anybody. You know, like he says, to do great work, you, know, you need three things. Obviously, it's the natural ability and determination um, and then the obsessive interest. And I absolutely love that trilogy of things needed to do great work. I think most people know that obviously you need ability and you need determination if you're going to do great work. Anybody who's done anything worthwhile knows that it requires a whole lot of work. But the obsessive interest part is just, I don't know, it's brilliant. And it's brilliant because it's so simple in that it, you know, it brings the first two elements together. Like he says, if you obsess, then you're going to be interested. And when you're interested, you need a whole lot less determination because curiosity is pulling you. You want to explore and you want to discover and you want to go learn about these things, no matter how random it is. You know, it, it can be collecting bus tickets, but if that's your obsession, then, you know, you're going to be infinitely curious and it's a whole lot easier to do really good work when you like that. Something that it, it just reminded me of, Einstein had a, a comment. Um, you'll have to uh, double check me on this, but I think it was in a letter that he wrote to his son. Because um, when he was still in Berlin, but his son was in Zurich and uh, his son had told him that he was learning to play the piano. And you know, he was saying he absolutely loves that he's learning to play the piano and that he must go and he must play things that he likes. You know, obviously do what the teacher tells you, but if you only have a bit of time, play what you like. Um, he says that that's the way to learn the most, that when you're doing something with such enjoyment that you don't even notice the time goes by. You know, you're learning for you and you're obsessed for you. You know, that's when you hit that flow state. I think that if you've ever been obsessed with something and worked with something that you're obsessed on, like you, you were saying with the podcast just now, you know, you know that feeling. And when that happens, the quality of work and the volume of work is, you know, it's incredible to see. I think this essay, you know, it it really hits a nerve with me because genius and exactly what it is that creates great work, you know, that's not easy to define. This is probably the closest that I've seen. Doing great work as a byproduct of obsession makes a lot of sense. Darwin, he said, couldn't turn it off. There was another guy that was an Indian mathematician who made substantial contributions to the analytic theory of numbers. And same thing. He was deeply interested. He wasn't struggling to get his work done. Work was just done for its own sake. And he probably wouldn't have even called it work, but it looked like work to other people. So maybe the key to finding more flow state is to chase your curiosities. He also talked about how children are competition for doing great work. So people are much less likely to do great work after they have children. Your interest then has to compete not only with external obstacles, but with a very powerful interest, which is your child. You want to spend time with your child. 
So you not only can't find the time for great work, you don't really want to do the work in the first place. And I don't have kids yet, but presumably I, I am going to want to spend a lot of time with them when I do. So I have heard from my friends who have kids who say that they can't believe how much time they wasted before kids because they realize, wow, I had so much time before. Do you plan to have kids someday? I definitely do. I don't know when. It won't be in the near future, but uh, at some points I do. My sister actually had a, a child recently, about four months ago, and she said the exact same thing. She said, what did I do with my time before, before I had a child? So again, I think it's one of those things that you can only really appreciate through experience. All of a sudden, you have something that comes into your life, which is the sense of your universe. And I mean, there's a lot of beauty in that. It's parenting definitely seems like something, you know, it's, it's incredible. I've already been fascinated by how much of a role parents play in a child's life. Um, talking from a, a development point of view, in, you know, it's, it might be the ultimate example of compounding out of everything. You, you look at, I look at it now and I look at her raising this newborn child. The child has no idea what's going on what they're learning, what they're doing, what they're being exposed to. But the actions taken now, you know, when a child is in that prime development phase from call it zero to one or zero to two years old, it, that's going to have an impact for you know, what they're doing when they're 10 and 20 and 30 and 40. Compound interest is a topic that we don't spend enough time on in school. If there was a topic to de develop an obsession in studying compound interest might just be it because it not only applies to money and I believe it was Einstein who said that it was the eighth wonder of the world compound interest it not only applies to money but relationships as you said parenting we don't think about that stuff but we'd be so much better as Charlie Munger says we'd be so much better to study the obvious than to try to grasp the esoteric. Like you said, it's it's obvious and it's it's right in front of us. But when you notice it and understand it and really make it part of uh, the models that you use to view the world, it completely changes how you approach every single situation. So yeah, I'd completely agree with you that it's it's something that you know, it needs more attention and it's something that's. We need to spend time on because it, it will change how we do everything. Speaking of studying the obvious, I listened to a podcast yesterday with James Nestor. He just wrote a book about breathing and the benefits of breathing through your nose and taking less breaths per minute and the psychological impacts, the neurological impacts of being a mouth breather are huge. And something like 75% of humans have a deviated septum. And he was on JRE, and one of the things that Joe Rogan said was that he didn't have his turbinates shaved down and have the deviated septum surgery until he was 40 years old. And when he did, it changed his life. He said, I can't believe that I waited this long to have this surgery done because he was depriving himself of oxygen. So it's a fascinating listen. I've sent it to three of my good friends already. I highly recommend it. It starts at 10 and a half minutes if anybody wants to tune in, and I'll, I'll put a link to it in the show notes. 
but studying the obvious is so important. There's, there are things that young people should learn in terms of communication, in terms of basic math, in terms of basic persuasion, basic psychology, basic public speaking, basic writing. You combine all those things, you can become a powerhouse learning machine where income and providing a great lifestyle will be the least of your problems because all that stuff will just come as a byproduct of, of developing skill sets when you're young and stacking those. So it's why I encourage young people to work to learn when you're young because you will earn later. It will happen. And I say that it's more common than not for people in their 20s to have no idea what they're going to do with their future. But we have all this access now. Like you can connect with a 40-year-old in London who is doing exactly what you want to do and learn from him and befriend him. And I just find it incredible. I wish that I was 22 years old again and had all of this access to people on the internet. So incredible, the world we're living in. And I know you appreciate that, which is one of the reasons I wanted to get you on because that makes you unique that you realize the advantages of this world that we're living in because many people take it for granted and there's not enough gratitude going around. Is it true that you studied law and finance and even graduated with distinction and then decided not to pursue law or finance? I studied law and finance for the last five years, actually. Um, and I realized about halfway through last year that you know, I, was, I was good at it, but I couldn't bear the thoughts of doing it for the rest of my life. So I was about 90% of the way through the, the course and... Uh, I didn't stop. I finished and finished strong. The reasoning behind it was that I wanted to work on these these large scale, high impact projects. I've always had that desire, and it's you know, the kind of projects that empower people to go out and improve the world around them and improve the lives of the, the people around them, and you know, work with people who are helping others reach their potential. And I think that technology is our biggest tool in trying to achieve that. I turned my attention towards technology. I'd always been extremely interested, but I'd never dedicated that much time to it. Uh, so I began teaching myself to code. Uh, I was part of a couple of competitions and projects and just absolutely fell in love with it. It took a lot of thought and it was a big decision, but it just didn't make any sense for me to pursue anything else. Um, you know, Put it this way, we wouldn't be having this conversation right now if I, if I didn't make that decision. Something like that, you know, something like this one conversation really does fill me with confidence that it's the right move. Uh, so I don't think education can ever be wasted. I think it's really about learning how to use um, your unique background to your advantage in years to come. Um, but, you know, only time will tell how that will play out. So how do you earn an income right now? So I'm studying again. I'm studying computer science. And then I also do some writing. Um, Again, that came through Twitter, uh, just to show the power of the internet again. And then I, so I have a full-time job. So I work in education. So I'm busy developing online platforms for a company in South Africa. We are the South African partner for the Lego Foundation. So the, the premise of the company is that 
learning and education should be based more on play. So we're really looking to to break the status quo in education and make progress in you know an industry that hasn't really seen much progress in the last century. So it's exciting work. Um, education is something that I have always been passionate about. It's one of the few things that can make an impact on such a large scale. So I feel fortunate to have the opportunity to to be working there. Um, while also, you know, working with technology and you know, doing something that I love. Where do you see yourself by 30 years old? I am a very independent person. So I do see myself working for myself. Um, I would like to go and work abroad. I think it's important to, to get out and, you know, to get out of your comfort zone, go somewhere where you have to meet new people. You have to be outgoing. You have to really to put yourself in situations where it's not easy. I think that there's, a lot of growth to be had in that and you know you learn a lot about yourself you learn a lot about different cultures and just about how the world operates in different countries the different continents like i said earlier it's you know i think it's naive to think that the way that we currently see the world is the way that the world works there's you know tons and tons of value in changing that and just exposing yourself to as much as possible so over the next few years i would um, like to go and work in a, a foreign country experience something different but uh, ultimately after that you know i'm not certain where i'll end up but i would like to be working in the technology industry my education started after i got a college degree i think most of the benefits were socialization relationships keeping a schedule discipline showing up on time learning from failure developing a resilient mind all of that came from college and much of it from playing baseball in college. But I became a self-directed learner when I got out of college. And I got a text from a buddy of mine a few days ago who asked me for a book to read, who said he hadn't read a book since college. And that is not uncommon for people not to be reading anymore. I think the stat is something like 70% of college grads never read a nonfiction book after graduating. It's pretty crazy. That's, I never knew that, that the, the figure was that high. I mean, that's incredible. The world is changing faster than it ever has. And that's, you know, that's only going to accelerate as time goes by. And whatever education we get, it's, it is relevant and um, it will always remain relevant, but not everything we do will be valuable well in you know 10 or 20 or 30 years time the thing that the skill that is really important to develop is the desire to learn if you are somebody who's constantly learning and constantly improving that it's very difficult not to make progress not to succeed but i've noticed that amongst people that i know and people that uh, you know i've met or heard about or even just chatted too quickly it, it, it doesn't seem like there are a lot of people with that you know, burning desire to keep learning. It's almost as though they hit a certain benchmark that is required to be kind of operationally functional in whatever work they do, and then it stops there. And it makes me question, you know, why is it like that? And when once you begin learning and you realize the benefit of it and 
you live a life where you you're constantly growing and you're constantly learning more and you you're kind of going to bed every night knowing a little bit more than when you woke up in the morning uh, you know that feeling is addictive and uh, it, it kind of stumps me a little bit as to why more people don't chase that maybe we'll see more of it post covid since young people were required to learn online maybe it will become a habit it's going to be very much about deliberate choice how you choose to spend your time online, which we've already discussed. I'll paraphrase Jordan Peterson. He says that young people need to get their own house in order and make their bed, for example, rather than thinking about changing the world. They have all these grand ambitions of changing the world for the better when they can't even get their own house in order. So the best way to change the world is to start with yourself. Michael Jackson taught us that. Start with the man in the mirror. So I, I just wanted to get your thoughts because you said earlier that you want to change the world, basically. And I thought, oh, this guy, this young guy really must have his shit in order. <laughs> yeah, look, I think that's out of all values – the thing that that's most important is discipline, you know, and that's it comes over into absolutely everything you do, from what you eat to how you study to what you write to whether you exercise or not. It all comes down to discipline, and that you know, there's a lot of things which influence how disciplined you are. But ultimately, if you if you aren't able to be disciplined with the small stuff, then there isn't any hope that you're going to be disciplined with the big stuff, and the big stuff is the stuff that changes the world. Perhaps it's uh, ignorant to think that you're know, incapable of changing the world or you know, ignorant for any young person to, to think that they are. But ultimately, the people who are going to change the world are the, the people who are sitting in classrooms and lecture halls and you know people with the, the desire to do it. Of course, nobody's going to, but you know, got a big desire, desire to do so. Um, I think you, you have to give it a go. I think it kind of ties in with the idea that, you know, go and be obsessed. Perhaps the, perhaps the ignorance of what it actually requires to do something great means that you are able to go and do it. When you're blind to what the journey entails, it makes it easier to keep taking one more step. Yeah, I think older people are concerned that young people don't have the wisdom and experience because there's so much to be said for living your life as an adult and having the stresses of paying a mortgage or supporting a family and those sorts of things. It, it changes your perspective. I think that's where Jordan Peterson is coming from, is that too many young people would be wise to develop themselves when they're young to earn an income and then perhaps free themselves to where they can be more impactful. They will have more impact if they develop themselves when young so that they can benefit people later. I'll give you an example. I, went, I traveled to Africa and I volunteered there and it was one of the greatest, most impactful experiences of my life. Well, I wouldn't have had as much impact if I did that when I was 22 years old, but I did it when I was financially free and had a lot more knowledge and wisdom to share as a 34, 35-year-old. 
rather than a 22-year-old. So I think that's what he means by get your own house in order, learn discipline, learn to manage a household budget, those sorts of things. Worry about changing the world later. You haven't read enough books yet. You haven't had enough life experience. I think that's where he's coming from. You want to do some fun questions? But yeah, let's do some fun ones. Cool. Apple or Android? Apple, 1,000%. <laughs> what is your favorite sport? It is cricket. I don't know how many of your American listeners will know too much about cricket, but uh, in South Africa, it's one of the biggest sports here. Funnily enough, I think the USA actually qualified for the 2020 World Cup, which was meant to be hosted later this year. As far as I know, it's the first major tournament that you guys have qualified for. Yeah, quite impressive. That's cool. So it's very similar to baseball, right? It's similar in that there's a bat and there's a ball and a bit of catching to do, but uh, it's different in that the, the pitcher in cricket is called a bowler. And then, yeah, so you can't throw it. You have to keep a straight arm. And then the, the actual batting is a little bit different. I actually played baseball for a few years when I was in high school. Really? Yeah, loved it. How prevalent is it in South Africa, baseball? It's not big. Um, so like does every high school in your district, let's say, have a team, a baseball team? No, no. Okay. If you want to play, you'll have to join a club. And there'll be a club relatively close to your house, but it's not um, at any schools. So, I mean, yeah, it's, it, it's a very small sport in comparison to something like cricket or soccer or rugby. Do you have American football there? No. We play rugby. Do you know rugby? Yes, I've heard of it. Yeah. <laughs> what about uh, basketball? Do you have a basketball team? Uh, some schools do. Basketball is more popular than baseball, um, but still, again, majority of schools don't. Uh, but there are a lot of people who are interested in in basketball. Who's the most famous South African soccer player? I would say Steven Pienaar. He spent the majority of his career in Europe, um, particularly in England. He had a, a solid career at Everton. So as a South African, if you're playing football in or soccer in Europe, you you know, you've made it. What is your favorite book? I always find it difficult to choose one. So I, I might have to mention a couple. Sure. Um, first one, and actually links to when you mentioned Vienna earlier, um, you're saying Freud uh, from another uh, Austrian uh, psychiatrist, Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning. So there's actually a, a bit of a story behind the book, and it's probably why it's one of my favorites. But so I'd heard a lot about the book. I mean, recommended by some great people, and I'd wanted to read it for for a long time. But I struggled to get my hands on a copy. Um, and earlier this year, I was in India, and I found a bookstore on the side of the road, which it happens to come across. And there it was, you know, selling Manage for Meaning, and they were selling it for less than two dollars. How much I'll ever make a, a purchase as valuable as that again? But it's it's an incredible book. It's, it documents the journey of the author. Um, through four concentration camps. Uh, so, you know, it, it's a tragic story. And I read it while I was traveling and that really gave me a lot of time to internalize the message. 
but the way that he explains his experience and how the only way to to work through that was to find meaning in his suffering is incredible. You know, the modern world is consumed by this idea of accomplishment and progress, and this book really blows that out of the water and puts everything into perspective. Um, then, wait, sorry, I want to interject there because that is so important. The text that I mentioned earlier that I got from a buddy who hadn't read a book since college, I'll tell you what I said to him. I said, first, your text fired me up. I think it takes humility to send somebody a text and say, hey, man, I haven't read a book. Can you recommend something for me? And we're 40 years old. So kudos to him for that. What I told him was what's what's most important with the first book is that it's got to be a page turner. It's got to be so enjoyable that you have trouble putting it down because that'll build the habit. And that's what's most important about reading is to build a reading habit. My very first recommendation would be something that he would finish in 10 days. I also believe if something doesn't grab you that you you should put it down. Because and put it down forever because there's just too many valuable books out there to spend time on a bad book. We only have a limited time. I'm 40 years old. I probably only have time to read another 300 books and that's it. So I'm going to choose wisely. If it doesn't grab me, I'm done. I don't care if I've spent $15. It's better to lose that money. And just thinking about spending money on books, you're getting someone who devoted the bulk of their life for probably about a year to 18 months to properly structure sentences and paragraphs to deliver a coherent message that makes it easy on the reader to where when you're reading it, it doesn't even feel like you're reading. It's sort of like when you go for a 45-minute walk and you're forgetting that you're walking. So the fact that you could only spend $15 for something that could change your life, have a meaningful impact, like Keegan just described with Man's Search for Meaning, that says so much. So I wouldn't ever worry about spending too much money on books. A book is an investment. I told him that too many people feel an obligation to finish books, and that's bullshit. There's, there's just too much out there. So don't get caught up in the vanity metric of I've got to read 100 books and all that. It's better to reread the same book twice than read two books that you're only skimming and getting surface knowledge from. So the books here, here are the books I recommended to him. For nonfiction, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. For fiction, a book called Some. 40 Tales for, of the Afterlives by David Eagleman. It's awesome. It's, it's 40 different stories of, how, of what's possible after you die. It's, right, it's, being, it's written as if you've already died and what happens, like 40 theories. And I loved it. It's a page turner. For self-development. Sorry. Yeah, go ahead. David Eagleman wrote The Brain. Also. Am I correct? I'm not sure. I'm just have you look at his eyes and you're a scientist. So yeah, the brain, the story of you is a fascinating read. Okay. I'll check that one out. Self-development. I, I gave him how to win friends and influence people. And he said, since he'd heard it so much on the podcast, that's the first one he's going to get. And then historical fiction, which I found to be a page turner and many others have too, is the Da Vinci code. Dan Brown. Nice. So to, to hear you say Man's Search for Meaning is, is pretty awesome. I, I just recommended that as the, the go-to book for nonfiction. 
And I've read it several times. The last time I read it was on a flight from Amsterdam to Krakow so that I could visit Auschwitz. So it was quite awesome to have it fresh on the brain as I walked through Auschwitz and had trouble. You know, I was choked up the entire time. Yeah, I can imagine. Speaking about page turners, I actually finished a book last week called I Will Never See the World Again by Ahmet Altan. Um, he's a Turkish journalist who was wrongfully imprisoned. Uh, and the, the book is his memoir. It's written as a series of essays from within prison, um, which were then smuggled out to somebody, uh, or it's in Turkish and then translated into English. And it is probably the most beautiful book I've ever written, the, the actual writing. You fly through it and then read it again, and then you just have the sense of sadness that there isn't any more of it to go. Um, you know, like you said, reading's so important, but it's also important to enjoy your reading. And you know, this is one of those few books where I felt it's impossible not to enjoy. Um, so I, I hadn't seen it or come across it before, and I absolutely loved it. I highly recommend it. It's called and I Will then, Never See the World Again. Yeah. I will yeah. buy the book. And then one other one which you know, really changed the way that I, I look at everything was Behave by Robert Sapolsky. Uh, Sapolsky is he's a neuroendocrinologist at Stanford. Um, and this book is about the behavior of humans at our best and at our worst. So I first got into Sapolsky listening to his lectures, um, they're old lectures. I think they're from 2007, but they're actually on Apple Podcasts and it's uh, human behavioral biology and it's just a semester. And you listen to him there and I haven't come across too many people who pack more knowledge into um, one sentence than he does, whether he's speaking or writing. Just having an idea of why people do what they do and that sometimes they can't help it. You know, it's, it's completely changed my outlook on the world. I love to study yeah. human nature. There's a recent mm. book by Robert Greene, uh, The Laws of Human Nature, that's very good. But we should all be studying and observing humans around us. We have so much to learn. It'll just make your walk through the world so much easier if you understand people's behavior and, and why they behave the way they do. If you could meet anyone on Twitter outside of Paul Graham, who would it be? I think it would be Ben Thompson. Okay. That's Stratechery? Uh, yeah. Dot com. Stratechery, yeah. Stratechery, however you pronounce it. <laughs> Somebody who uh, I mentioned earlier, Toby Lutke, and he's a sort I mean, if you if you haven't listened to much of him, I'd really recommend it because you can see that he's just thinking at an extremely high level, but he articulates it in a way that everything just resonates. Um, you know, he's, he's probably my favorite thinker in the world. So I would, I would, yeah, I'd recommend his episode on Invest at the Best with Patrick O'Shaughnessy is brilliant. I think he's also done um, one on the Knowledge Podcast with Shane Parrish. Very good. You brought up some great examples. So Shane Parrish doesn't resonate with me. He and I maybe are too much, too different. But Nassim Taleb does. Some people think Nassim Taleb is a prick, that he's an asshole. I can see that, but I still, I like him. So that's why I'm always saying, like, find somebody that resonates with you that you like and keep searching until you find that person. And then when you do, 
become a subscriber and revisit the material because you'll learn easier. You'll learn more because we're not all attracted to the same sort of personality, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, that's the the beauty of it is that there is so much good stuff out there. I mean, it's not to say that, you know, one is right or one is wrong. It's just, it's what works for you and what you enjoy because ultimately that learning experience has to be enjoyable. You know, it can't feel like a chore to go and listen to a podcast or read a book. It has to be something that you look forward to and, you know, you know that you're going to gain something from it, but that's time that you enjoy. So I think you, you've hit the nail on the head there and find the people that, you know, that do it for you and then just consume what, what you can from them. Yeah, it reminds me of a book that I delayed reading because everybody else was reading it. Because if you read the same books that everyone else is reading, then you you won't be different. You won't think differently than other people. So that's why I was quick to write down the books that you mentioned that I'd never heard of. Uh, but Zero to One by Peter Thiel is the book that I have in mind that I, I didn't want to read because all over my Twitter feed, that's what everybody was reading. But I finally did read it, and I'm glad that I did. There is a lot of gold <laughs> in that book. I have a question for you. If somebody that you respected, like Ben Thompson, recommended a book, or let's say he recommended five books, what would keep you from buying all five of those or to go outside of those recommendations and take a chance on a book that wasn't recommended to you? Let me tell you why I'm asking the question. Maybe it'll help. Yeah. So some of the young folks that I coach, I, I could tell them like a 22-year-old, they want to do what I have done. I can tell them now that I've read all these books, which books they should read at certain points in their development. But sometimes when I ask them, hey, what are you reading? They'll tell me a book that I've never heard of. But I still, because you can't spend enough money on books, I still would have bought the book if somebody I respected and trusted their judgment if they recommended it. I I'd buy it and put it on the nightstand and just stack it up with the others until I could get to it. Because 14 months when you're looking for a new book, you're going to forget that recommendation. Yeah. Um, on the same page as you there, I would definitely buy it. You know, it's, if it's somebody that you respect and you know you, you trust their judgments, um, you know, buy it and start it. I often start a book, read the first kind of chapter and then decide if I want to go from there or just have a look through the index and find a chapter that looks particularly interesting um, and read that. And I think that you can pick up pretty quickly how you feel, but okay, this is going to be good or I'm really not enjoying this. And often I find that I'll read it and find I'm not enjoying it. And when I revisit it in six months or a year's time, I think how on earth did I not love this the first time? You know, books, you know, they mean different things to you at different times. So I think that's the beauty of them is that you can read them and you can revisit it a year or three years later and you can interpret it completely differently. I want to share a story with you that I was just reminded of in Africa. The only time I've ever been whitewater rafting was on the Zambezi River. And as we were getting in the boat or with a raft, whatever you call those, the guy next to me said he was in the front with me, which was the most dangerous portion of the boat. He said, have you ever whitewater rafted? And I said, no. And he said, why would you make your first time on the Zambezi River and sit in the front of the boat? Are you crazy? What happened was we were on, I guess it was a level five rapid. I don't really know the levels. 
and the guy in the back who is the the guide basically you know he's steering on both sides he's paddling on both sides he he made eye contact with me right before this huge rapid and his the look on his face told me that we're going to lose you kind of kind of look and sure enough it happened so fast i was thrown from the boat and i was underneath the boat and i was sort of trapped but they had given us guidance as to how to get from out of the situation like you you walk on the boat with your hands or whatever but the rapid was going so fast and it was like 50 yards long so i totally lost track of the boat i didn't know which way was up and i felt like i was underwater for about a minute and it probably was only like 13 seconds or something but i didn't prepare to hold my breath you know it happened so fast i didn't i didn't even have a chance to take a big breath to hold. So I got desperate for, I needed to breathe and just breathed in all this water. I just breathed underwater. And I don't know if that's what you're supposed to, you're probably not supposed to do that, but I couldn't help it. Right. I just, I I panicked, I guess. Uh, But I remember thinking, this is how it ends. Like this is, this is the end of my life. This is how I die. As soon as I got out, which I, you know, I, I did live, I survived, obviously. There was a crocodile that was just sunning on the a rock right near us. So the Zambezi River is filled with crocodiles and, and hippos at certain yeah. points of the river. So I'm in crocodile infested water, didn't know which way was up, and I couldn't breathe. And I, I thought that that was it. So I'm curious, have, have you ever had a moment where you thought you were going to die? That sounds absolutely petrifying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was not good. <laughs> Uh, no, I'm, I'm happy to report that I haven't. Oh, that's uh, good. Nothing like that. Yeah, I've been lucky. If someone dropped one million US dollars in your lap tomorrow, what would you do with it? A lot of money here. A uh, million US dollars is about 15 million around. 80, 80 to 90% of it would go straight into savings and investments. Generally not too uh, aggressive with my investments. I invest in uh, unit trusts and things that are, that are generally pretty steady. You know, I've always I've invested from a young age, so I have the benefit of time on my side. No, What's a unit trust? Stick, uh, so it's a big portfolio of companies. Um, you have different compositions. Um, sort of like a mutual fund or an index fund compiles a lot yeah. of companies and you invest a little bit yeah. in each of those? Okay. And is it all South yeah. African or international? No. Uh, a bit of both. South African economy um, is quite volatile. I do try to get some money offshore as often as possible. I would take a portion of it and be a little bit more aggressive with it. When you're playing with that amount of money, you can't afford to. And I think it's important to, to take a few risks with it. I also think that it's having an understanding of how markets work and how money works is you know it's important it impacts everything we do and the best way to learn that is to actually throw yourself into the deep end and figure it out go and see what happens when you when you make mistakes um with where you position yourself in the markets and go and see what happens when you do proper research and you know what you're doing and you can reap the rewards for it i think that is a a valuable lesson to learn whichever way it goes i would save my family traveling I think it's it's important to see the world, but that is improved by seeing it with the people that you love and experiencing it with them. 
So that's definitely something that I would want to do. What's the best place you've visited? I was in Turkey um, about this time last year. Uh, we actually did um, a few countries around the Mediterranean and we were in Turkey and we went to Ephesus, which it's a, you know, it's an ancient site. It's, it's, it's older than the pyramids. And that was mind blowing to go there and see Turkish people. So, you know, they were super interesting. I've never come across salesmen like that. Um, we were, <laughs> we were walking through a market and I mean, the, the South African accent is fairly distinct, but a lot of people mistake us for Australians or New Zealanders. And I mean, we were walking through and we all, I'm English, um, but one of the languages spoken in South Africa is Afrikaans. And I mean, it's not too popular, particularly throughout the rest of the world. You know, you won't hear Afrikaans anywhere else. Um, and we were walking through a market and someone overheard our accent and they started speaking to us in Afrikaans trying to sell something. I mean, this is, you know, it's a Turkish guy speaking Afrikaans, but we can barely speak Afrikaans. I was very impressed. I could see a lot of South Africans visiting Turkey. When, when my buddy and I were in South Africa and flew north, we arrived in Istanbul and we spent a day or two in Istanbul before going on to Israel. So it is due north, right, from Johannesburg. So that yeah. makes a lot of sense. It's also affordable in terms of, you know, it's one of the, the cheaper European destinations that you can travel to. Um, traveling on the Rand is expensive in you know, kind of mainland Europe. Um, so you certainly can get a lot more value for money in places like Turkey, Turkey or Hungary or kind of anywhere in Eastern Europe. How much does it cost you to live in Johannesburg? Like how much money do you spend per month? As a, a single person, if you earn $2,000 a month, you are probably in like a three-bedroom house and a car and you know, happily saving. What do you hope to be doing when you're my age? The freedom that you have is, is definitely something that uh, I aspire to have. It's everything else kind of pales in comparison to having complete freedom to say how you spend your time and where you spend your time. You know, everything changes and your desires change and what you want to do changes. So if you have the freedom to change with that, I think that that um, is really key to, to leading an enjoyable life. There's a podcast called Below the Line that I just discovered recently. And so I started at the top with episode one the host is James Bashara, and his guest was Justin Kahn. Justin Kahn sold Twitch to Amazon for a billion dollars. And the host, James Bashara, he sold, I think he may have been part of Airbnb. Shoot, I'm not sure. I don't remember now. But he, his company sold for $400 million. And they were having a conversation about how Justin spent four days in bed watching Netflix after the sale, not to, not immediately after, but he was trying to make the point that once you get what you want, your baseline level of happiness is the same as it was before. And so he started a meditation practice that he was proud to have like 41 days straight of doing it. And he said what he was trying to do is increase his baseline level of happiness. So one of the things that 
I say frequently is that if you're not happy with what you have now, you won't be happy when you get what you want. I don't care if it's a three-story house or a million dollars or the wife of your dreams, you're going to revert to your baseline level of happiness. So it's so important to do the internal work now because you get acclimated to everything that you have very frequently. You know, sometimes when I get in bed at night, I remind my wife that we don't have to set the alarm tonight. And it's sort of a joke because we don't ever have to set the alarm clock. And I thought it was so enlightening to hear a guy who had sold his company for a billion dollars. I mean, how many people in Silicon Valley and around the world would would love, I mean, that would be their dying wish to develop a company that sells to Amazon for a billion dollars. And if he held on to it, that stake is worth way more now because I, I think it's valued recently at $25 billion, the, the Twitch aspect of Amazon. So anyway, you still have to find ways to occupy your time. And hopefully it's in doing something that allows for flow state, which is what you so intelligently uh, spoke about earlier. I will say that it is awesome to have financial freedom and be able to do what you want with your time. But understand that you still will need to occupy your time. And hopefully what having more time enables you to do is think through what it is that's important, which is relationships, which is doing important work like Paul Graham talks about. So hopefully you have more time to consider what is important work. And so the work that I do now, it not only occupies my time, but I want Man Overseas to be a place where people can go to either be entertained, educated, or elevated, which just means lifted up and motivated. So Providing value to the world, kind of sort of like what my favorite book, Man's Search for Meaning, talks about, right? Helping others to find meaning in their lives. And if they want to do what I do, then I'm happy to help them one-on-one. But I had to, I started coaching because I had to put a premium on my time because after appearing on a podcast called Bigger Pockets, I was inundated with people who wanted mentorship and you just can't help everyone. So anyway, that's how I was able to narrow the list down of folks that I help. I'm going to say a few names, and I want you to tell me if they're overrated or underrated. Lionel Messi. What if they neither? (laughs) I would want you to explain what that means. Does that mean they are perfectly rated? For Lionel Messi, I mean, he's regarded as one of the top two greatest of all time, and, you know, that's exactly where he belongs. I can't, can't distinguish between him and Ronaldo. So I think he's perfectly rated. Donald Trump. Overrated. Barack Obama. Underrated in South Africa. I don't know about other places in the world. Nelson Mandela. A lot of people will say overrated. I will say underrated because I think it's difficult to comprehend the kind of leadership it takes to unite a country that was so unbelievably divided. Before we wrap up, I want to give you an opportunity to ask any question you might have of me. A lot of people go 
traveling because you know they see it as as the answer um you know if they're uncertain of what they want to do or what their next move is they kind of think that hitting the road for a few months at a time is kind of going to solve that um I'd like to know whether you think that is a good strategy or whether it seems like an escape tactic. That's a great question. I have members of my family who believed that when I started traveling, I was trying to escape something. There were more than 20 reasons why I started traveling. And we have so many people who think in binary terms about everything. And so I can't tell you how many times when I'm asked a question and I give a response, someone will say, well, I thought it was this. And I'll say, well, I don't know how much time you have. I mean, if you want my layered 14-part answer, I'm happy to give it to you. But it's just not a yes or no question. So just to give you an example, with regard to traveling, I was financially independent where my income exceeded my expenses. I have a voracious appetite for learning. I knew that I would have a lot of time on planes to think and to write. And that's the sort of stuff that I enjoy. I enjoy solitude, so I had a lot of time in hotel rooms because I felt like I was too old to stay in hostels, and I'm not a partier anyway. I enjoyed visiting things like the British Museum and the courts where the Nuremberg trials were were held and Zeppelin Field and Auschwitz, and I did all that by myself. So that's just one aspect or two aspects, the financial independence and, and the desire for learning. That's just a few aspects of why I started traveling. One thing I don't agree with is people who are trying to discover who they are. To me, that is BS. (laughs) You don't discover who you are. You create who you are. And if you're going to travel in order to develop yourself and make yourself more worldly and open-minded and empathetic, by all means, that is, I don't, I don't know how else you could get a better learning experience than to immerse yourself in different cultures, get to know different people, how they think, how they live. It also gives you a greater appreciation for how good you have it back home. So as long as you pay attention to those sorts of things and you journal and you write and you think it's, it's so powerful of an experience that I do wish that everyone could do it. But uh, you're at risk if you do it as an American of being perceived as a counterculture dropout. But if you if you view it as I did and you do it a little older when you have money, it is a a wondrous experience that, you know, if I, I would hesitate to share with anyone how much money I have now walked away from. If you were to take just the salary of what I was making, add it up over five years and then the savings rate that I was living with is, 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 was considerable. So doing, seeing as how the market has performed in five years, you take the income that I would have had. But guess what? I wouldn't, you can't trade the experiences I've had the last five years for anything. I, I wouldn't trade those for, for that money. 
I made the decision I made for a reason. I wouldn't trade my 30s for anything. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how else to say it. So does that answer your question or do you want me to, you want me to talk more about it? Because I could talk all day. It's just so deep. It's so layered as to why I made the decision to do what I did. No, that uh, answers my question in its entirety. Yeah, like you said, the immense value in going there and taking that time to yourself and journaling and writing and thinking um, and kind of just expanding your, your knowledge of the world. So, yeah, answer the question perfectly. I think this year would be a good time for people to do it. Although I wouldn't normally advocate for young people to take a year out of building their career to do this. If you're going to be learning online, which is something you can do on your own anyway, I would not pay $10,000 tuition and engage in online learning this, this semester coming up. There's no way. I, I would take that opportunity to travel. Yeah, I agree with you. All right, buddy. Well, how can people connect with you online? They can find me on Twitter. So my handle is at Keegan Stoko, K-E-A-G-A-N-S-T-O-K-O-E. And they can also find me and my writing on my website, which is www.keganstoko.com. And I also write a weekly newsletter called Timeless Tuesday. It's super short, um, about a minute's worth of reading. And in it, uh, I share one idea, a couple of resources that I'm either rereading or re-listening re to, and one question which is really aimed at uh, making the reader think about the way that they, they see the world and things that they kind of just accept for what it is. So the link to that is stoko, S-T-O-K-O-E dot substack dot com. Excellent. Keegan, really enjoyed the conversation, man. Thank you for being on the podcast. Yeah, thank you. I love this. You're a brilliant host. So thank you for organizing. Friends, thank you for listening. I am always humbled by your listenership. If you wish to follow my adventures on Instagram and Twitter, I am at man underscore overseas. Thank you, folks. Thank you.